Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the repository that receives all new planning information and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. A promised new bill to speed infrastructure delivery. How has the sector reacted? We've had the Labour Party conference. What did we learn? And more acquisition news in the consultancy sector, including an unexpected development. And in our deep dive section, we'll be exploring the implications for planning of the government's promised investment zones. By the end of the show, you should know enough to approach the office coffee machine with confidence. So, time to get out the reading glasses. Ready to venture in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in Room 106. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, I guess we have to start with the mini-budget this month and the growth plan documents that came out alongside it. And later in the show, you're going to be talking about the investment zones announcements. The second big element of that was the promise of a new planning and infrastructure bill to speed up major infrastructure delivery. Okay, and what has the government said about this bill? Well, in his speech, the Chancellor said the bill would unpick the complex patchwork of planning restrictions and EU-derived laws that constrain our growth. In the growth plan document, which was published by the Treasury on the same day, it was a bit more specific. It said the new legislation would be brought forward in the coming months, so that's so quite soon, and it would speed up the delivery of what it calls priority major infrastructure projects by reducing unnecessary burdens. And it goes on to say that this includes reducing the burden of environmental assessments, reducing bureaucracy in the consultation process, and alongside that, making consultation requirements more proportionate, reforming habitats and species regulations, and increasing flexibility to make changes to a development consent order once it has been submitted. So according to the growth plan document, the bill at this point appears to be focused on changes to the planning process for nationally significant infrastructure projects, or NSIPs as they're known, rather than the standard town and country planning process where local planning authorities are the key decision-making bodies. But then the Chancellor's description of it in his speech suggests that there could be broader changes to planning and environmental laws as part of that. So before the bill appears, you know, there may be some other, some additional and, and wider planning changes beyond major infrastructure projects. Interesting. So that's the bill. And then there's um, the investment zones that you mentioned earlier. Have there been some other planning related announcements as part of the mini budget? Yes. So in the growth plan, it also announced that alongside the bill, there would be what it calls further sector specific changes to accelerate delivery of infrastructure. And these include prioritising the delivery of national policy statements for energy, water resources, and national networks. And national policy statements are the sort of overarching policy documents that guide government decisions in, in these areas. And also, promise was the prioritisation of a, what it calls a cross-government action plan for reform of the NSIP planning system. And our readers will be aware that, that there's already a process underway of um, government changes to the NSIP regime. So I'm not sure whether that's a completely new announcement or they're talking about um, what's already happening. 
And it very significantly talked about bringing onshore wind planning policy in line with other infrastructure to allow it to be deployed more easily in England. And um, of course, in England, unlike Scotland, it's very difficult to get consent for uh, onshore wind projects in the last seven years since the um, the government made it much harder. So that will be a major a major change, and um, yeah, possibly some resistance to that from Conservative MPs. And the growth plan document also talked about accelerating delivery of road projects as well by um, through the Highways Act in 1980 and possibly changing the judicial review system to avoid claims which cause unnecessary delays to delivery. So that's something else to look out for. And as far as onshore wind is concerned, is the suggestion that it might be put into the same system for deciding on nationally significant infrastructure as applies to nuclear power stations and big railway projects and big road projects, etc., etc.? Yeah, I, th- I think that certainly looks like what they're talking about because when the government made it harder for onshore wind projects to be consented through the town and country planning system by, uh, and then changing national planning policy so that you know it had to have local, it had to have the backing of um, the local community and be and, and be a site allocated in a local neighbourhood plan. Just after that, they also changed the um, NSIP rules so that large onshore wind projects, which would have gone been considered by the planning inspector would now be considered by councils instead which meant that they were also subject to these restrictions so i guess sort of bringing that standardizing that threshold would mean that you'd see more large onshore wind projects going through the NSIP regime so what reaction has there been to all this well the most significant reaction has been from leading environmental groups that have been highly critical of the proposed relaxation of environmental rules in investment zones I know you're going to talk about that more later, but in these, the government has promised to remove burdensome EU requirements, which create paperwork and stall development, but do not necessarily protect the environment. And one of the strongest reactions was from the National Trust. So its its Director General, Hilary McGrady, said that these investment zones represented a free-for-all for nature and heritage. She said, rather than ramp up action to support our environment, this government appears, however, to be heading in the opposite direction. Environmental protections are dismissed as burdens while investment and growth are pitted against nature and climate action. And we also had the RSPB describe the budget as an, an attack on nature, saying it potentially tears up the most fundamental legal protections our remaining wildlife has. And it said that if the government carries out its plans for investment zones, nowhere will be safe. So very, some very strong words there. And in the planning and development sectors, there seems to be certainly a degree of exasperation at the announcement of yet more changes to the planning system after we had the levelling up bill announced early this year and currently going through Parliament with a lot of significant changes in that. And then a couple of years ago, we had the planning white paper changes, which were announced to a large fanfare, and then they were subsequently ditched. And all that's had a big impact on local plan making. Um, a lot of local plans delayed because of this national policy uncertainty. Interestingly, there's some speculation that the controversial white paper growth zones proposal might be resurrected in some form in investment zones. It would certainly risk antagonising some Tory MPs. Some developer groups have welcomed the news of supply side reforms, but similarly there was concern about deregulation of planning and environmental rules and warnings about the resourcing of both council planning teams and the planning inspectorate if these reforms are going to be effective. 
And finally, the Labour Party has raised concerns about the possible lack of affordable housing requirements in investment zones. Okay, well, all very interesting. Um, And yes, certainly it's, um, if maybe not as contentious as the... um, as the tax plans, it, it's still um, been uh, been quite controversial in itself, hasn't it? Of course, we don't really yet know exactly the detail of what these investment zones are going to comprise, or or what this um, planning and infrastructure bill will will involve. It's quite thin on detail of exactly what's going to be involved. So, I guess people are reacting to what they think is the sort of rhetoric surrounding it from government, as opposed to any hard details. Yes, I mean certainly the the rhetoric before the budget, which has been toned down a bit subsequently, was very much sort of along the lines of deregulation. I think, which has alarmed some people. To be fair, the Chancellor himself has stressed since the mini budget that the government doesn't want to um, make the environmental assessments any less rigorous, but wants to speed up the process. Okay, so what else has been going on in the last couple of weeks? Well, the other big news last week was that the Labour Party has held its annual conference in Liverpool. There wasn't that much in the way of detailed planning policy announcements. We're only two years away from the next general election, but there were some significant promises. So the party leader, Sir Keir Starmer, in his conference speech, promised that the party would reform planning so speculators can't stop communities getting shovels in the ground. It's not entirely clear what what he meant by that, but it seems to be giving... um, uh, local communities more of a say over um, planning in their um, in their area, which sort of chimes a bit with what um, Liz Truss has been saying, and restricting developers from speculating on land. But obviously, that's a, a very contentious issue. A lot of house builders um, say that, yeah, that 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 doesn't happen. He also talks about giving councils new house building powers. He said, in order to increase the number of homes being built, local councils will be given new powers to designate sites for large scale development. None of this will be easy. It will mean tough battles on issues like planning and regulation. And he also declared that Labour wants to boost home ownership, which is an aspiration that's long been associated with the Conservative Party. And he told the conference he wants to get one and a half million more people on the housing ladder and increased housing delivery will, will be a big part of that and also a new mortgage guarantee scheme. And he said, if you're grafting every hour to buy your own home, Labour is on your side. Labour is the party of home ownership in Britain today. So uh, he seems to be parking his his tanks on the Conservative lawn there with with a big um, play on home ownership. Besides that, there was very little said about planning with no fringe events on the topic, which is unusual for a party conference. Okay, And um, what about the shadow housing and levelling up team? Well, we didn't hear much from them about planning, but we the Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, Lisa Nandy, criticised the government's plans for new investment zones that, um, as we've said, would deregulate planning rules. She said they will spark little growth and warned that affordable housing provision and environmental protections would be at risk. She told a fringe meeting, there's nothing new about investment zones. George Osborne tried them, I think she might be referring to enterprise zones, yeah, and found they only delivered a fraction of the jobs he'd hoped She also promised that Labour would restore social housing as the second biggest tenure in the UK after home ownership and would um, ramp up social housing delivery. What about sort of related areas to planning? Did the party announce anything in sort of areas like infrastructure or renewable energy? Yes, it looks like they plan to dramatically increase support for renewable energy projects. The Shadow Climate Change Secretary, Ed Miliband, said Labour would double the amount of onshore wind energy and triple solar power. 
And then the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, said she would maintain the ban on fracking, which Liz Truss has recently announced that the, um, the government would lift the moratorium. So Rachel Reeves said, fracking is dangerous, it's bad for the planet, and with Labour, it will not happen. And the party also published a green prosperity plan that would invest in solar, wind, tidal, hydrogen and nuclear power. So away from the sort of uh, political sphere and moving over into the sort of business side of planning, I understand there's been quite a lot going on in the planning consultancy market in the last couple of weeks. Yes. Firstly, we had the Canadian multidisciplinary firm WSP announcing its completion of the purchases of three built environment consultancies, which all have big planning teams. In August, the uh, professional services firm Capita announced the sale of two of its planning and real estate outfits to WSP. The um, Fertility Capital Real Estate and Infrastructure, which is its real estate division, and also the consultancy GL Hearn, which it bought a few years ago. And WSP has now announced that it's completed the acquisition of both firms for £60 million. In addition, John Wood Group announced it had also completed the sale of its built environment consulting business to WSP. So Wood is a British multinational engineering consulting business with its headquarters in Aberdeen. And all these three firms have large planning consultancy divisions that are being transferred to WSP, which will now have a huge planning team. However, at the same time, in what might be seen as a a limit to WSP's buying powers, it emerged that a North American rival consultancy, Tetra Tech, had outbid it to acquire one of the UK's biggest planning firms. Last month, our readers will remember that WSP announced that it intended to buy RPS Group in a deal worth £626 million. But um, last week, Tetra Tech, which is based in California, announced that instead it it had reached an agreement to acquire RPS for the higher amount of uh, £636 million. Okay. So when all this sort of shakes out, what is going to be the impact on the size of the WSP planning team? Well, according to our annual consultancy survey, from last year, WSP already has 93 charter town planners as of September last year, which makes it the fifth largest planning consultancy in the UK. And the figures for Capita, excluding GL Hearn, was 58 charter town planners in the last consultancy survey, which made it the 10th largest firm. The figures for GL Hearn haven't been provided to our survey since 2017. But from previous figures, we can guess that they could have more than 50. And Wood was the 22nd largest firm in the survey with 28 charter town planners. So unless the planning teams are significantly cut following these um, purchases, we could be looking at WSP having a planning team with over 200 chartered town planners, which, which would make it the biggest in the country. Okay, and moving on to TetraTech, uh, who've hijacked the WSP takeover of RPS. How were they able to do that? And what might this mean for the TetraTech planning team? Well, essentially, they bid more money than WSP, and RPS itself has found it to be a more attractive offer. According to a statement from TetraTech, the RPS board of directors has unanimously recommended the, um, the deal with itself. One thing TetraTech highlighted was the attraction of RPS's expertise in water and renewable and environmental projects. And what might this mean for the TetraTech planning team? So TetraTech is the 14th largest consultancy firm in England, according to our uh, latest consultancy survey. 
It's employed 40 chartered town planners as of September last year. RPS came in sixth with 87 chartered town planners. It's long been one of the UK's biggest planning consultancies. So, you know, we're looking at a combined planning team of well over 100. Okay, well, many thanks, John. And of course, more details of all of these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Many thanks and see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week. But for now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive, in which we'll be exploring more of the implications of the government's promised investment zones. Bye for now. Right, so now I need to find my way to a new corner of Room 106, which is the part of the catacomb where they keep the information relating to these new investment zones that the government has promised. And I'm hoping that I'm going to find there our correspondent, Ben Cochin, who has been looking at this in some detail. Ah, Ben. Hi, finding my way through the piles of documents. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear somebody's doing it. Somebody's got to do it, haven't they? Maybe you've had a chance to look at it more closely than some of the local authorities who've already put in bids. Well, the the process is very much ongoing and moving very fast. Uh, When the growth plan came out, uh, it feels like an age ago, just over a week ago, there was some idea that there will be these investment zones. They had 38 authorities lined up who'd expressed some interest. And now, over the weekend, we understand that expressions of interest are being invited across the country for authorities to apply for, for for investment, to set up an investment zone within their districts. And they've got 14 days to apply, believe it or not. So uh, get writing quickly, I'd say to them if they're interested, but they may not be. And we'll come on to that, I'm sure, Richard. This is not a clear-cut situation. Okay. So tell us a bit more about these investment zones. We know that they're going to offer a low tax environment, or there's the potential for people running them to offer a, a low tax environment for businesses. But the reason why we're so interested is because there's a promised liberalisation of planning in, in those areas. So tell us a bit about what this liberalisation of planning could involve. Well, it's all very unclear at the moment exactly what the planning regime will be in these zones. They're talking about accelerated routes to planning consent. But how this will be liberalised is a little bit unclear. I think we're looking at relaxation and various environmental controls, which has obviously raised the hackles of the environmental lobby. So, you know, they're looking for, I think, actually councils to come forward with ideas. And obviously, there are a number of ideas already floating around that councils can already do, like local development orders, simplified planning zones. These are all basically approaches whereby a council develops quite a detailed plan for for a particular area and then applications are far more simple because they basically, if they conform with those those, uh, strategic documents, these local documents, then they've got an implied planning permission. And this may be what they're going for. It may be the other, another one which is coming forward, which is the zoning idea which got killed after the planning white paper that came out two years ago now, I think. 
which was similar in, in outlook, but it bypassed one stage of the planning system. You didn't have to put in a outline planning permission, just a, um, a detailed one if, you, if it was within a growth zone. It got canned because basically people didn't want uh, this system that bypassed community engagement. Yeah, so it was, it was people were concerned about a, a system where the development plan would effectively confer an outline permission. Indeed, indeed. And with all these accelerated planning processes, one of the things that's clearly going to get sacrificed is community engagement. This long preparation time, which which gets your community on board, because we're talking about a fast way to a planning approval. Okay. So we don't know exactly what this sort of streamlined consent process that the government says will be available in these areas. We don't know yet what exactly it will be, but I see that the government has said that it wants authorities that are applying for this to commit in principle to using whatever this streamlined process is. Indeed, and this is all quite problematic. And if I was a local authority, I'm not sure how I'd respond I think there are some cash incentives for developers to move in to zone, stamp duty, relaxation, national insurance, holidays on new employees in in zones. And there is talk that there may be some sort of what what might be called a growth deal, I suppose, in, in, in current parlance, which you've got in some growth areas already. They may use those in investment zones. It's all very unclear, but a local authority by putting an expression of interest in, is signing up to something which they don't know very much about. Yes. And at the moment, we don't know, maybe maybe the authorities have been tipped the wink on this, but we don't really know what the financial incentives are and we don't know what the, um, what the streamlined system is. However, you have been looking into, I think, some of the components of what a streamlined planning or streamlined consent system could involve. I think from your articles, I've, I've also seen that there's been some suggestion that developer contributions could be reduced to just covering what was described as, in quotes, essential infrastructure. And I think some people have interpreted that as maybe not including affordable housing, a reduction of consult- consultation with statutory bodies, and a relaxation of national and local policy requirements, but not green belt and historic buildings. Where are those suggestions coming from? There's been a plethora of paper, or no, not paper these days, but you know what, documents coming out, which have kind of thrown out these ideas uh, that this, this this would happen. There was guidance which came out not last weekend, the weekend before, almost immediately after the growth plans. There was this guidance which came out. Well, I'm saying they fleshed it out in the expression of interest that came out just this last weekend, but actually there isn't very much about it. It's very much processy. It's about how you make an application how you identify the sites, but really not about the, the, the real engine of what will make things happen. And that, 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 to me, would be very concerning if I was a local authority. I don't know what was in it for me. I suppose it could help get your key sites developed. That's the idea. If local, long local authorities, they've got these sites, they've been hanging around, they might have planning permission, but somehow development's not happening. And they want to get them developed, and they may see this as a tool of get, to get them developed. I'm not quite sure what this will offer them, 
but it might do in terms of a little bit more developer interest. I think that's that's what it boils down to, a bit more developer interest. Okay, so the expression of interest documents are, are, are now out there inviting authorities to get in touch with the government. What process actually has to be gone through before any authorities will actually be getting a confirmed zone in place? Oh, my goodness. The document sets out quite a lot of work which an authority would have to do to get a zone agreed. And that, that relates to whether the planning permission's in place, whether the developer's interested, whether they've uh, looked at the environmental impact. And they will have to mitigate the environmental impact, whatever that means. So they'll have to see how they'll uh, mitigate the impact. There's quite a lot of work to be done before they can get a, an investment zone in place. And one of the interesting questions actually is, is what does the government need to do to get investment zones in place? And this is something that I talked to quite a few lawyers about. And the government actually says it needs legislation, particularly for the financial incentives. Just one more thing, actually, and, and, and this is a peculiar one, is that basically the investment zones are being targeted at mayoral combined authorities and upper tier authorities. So if you're a lower lower tier authority, then I'm afraid this isn't up to you to bid for, even though your upper tier authority might bid for one for you, which you may not be that interested in. Actually, I think there's one more point, actually, Richard, which is terribly important, is that uh, this is all being modelled on the enterprise zone idea, which was very much a Thatcherite process started in the very early 1980s that had very mixed results. It's being modelled on Canary Wharf. Uh, everyone cites Canary Wharf when you talk about enterprise zones, and, they, and it's come up in investment zones as well. Now, I don't think um, most authorities around the country will get a uh, Canary Wharf. Uh, so this experience is not particularly relevant. And there are big issues there with Canary Wharf, which I think could be replicated with these schemes in terms of the lack of planning, which it suffered from, and actually the high cost. These developments don't come without their costs in terms of infrastructure requirements. Well, that's right, isn't it? The, the, I think that point has been made that the upfront infrastructure spending in, uh, in the Docklands was, was very high, which, um, you know, and, and that contributed uh, an awful lot to the ability to attract investment. And also actually financial incentives. The Canary Wharf developers, they went bust, but that wasn't without them pocketing about £2 billion uh, foregone tax revenue. This is no magic wand to getting development going. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ben. That's really interesting. I suspect there's uh, enough paperwork in here to keep you going for a while yet. So uh, I'll leave you to study it and look forward to seeing you in uh, Room 106 again soon. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. Yes, there's something to keep me busy here for a few days, at least. <laughs> Now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice, the story that's uh, really caught the attention of our readers without maybe being a, uh, a big national headline. John. Hello, Richard. Our most read story of the past fortnight, above all the mini-budget coverage, was actually about a account in Lancashire where a damning internal report has warned that the authority is at risk of being stripped of planning powers because staff shortages are causing delays in processing applications. 
there's only about one local authority, but I think it's captured the imagination of our readers because this issue of under-resourced and struggling council planning teams is still a very hot topic. So it's about West Lancashire Borough Council and its, its planning problems were highlighted in a report to members of its Executive Overview and Scrutiny Committee earlier in the month. Its planning and regulatory service as a whole was seen by the committee as facing particular challenges and was given a risk ranking of nine, which was the highest of all its departments, and described as being at the concerned level. A report to councillors said, lack of permanent planning staff resource is resulting in potential sustained delay to the processing of applications. This is an enduring risk and there is a very real risk of the council being put into special measures. And as our readers know, special measures is a, a government programme where councils that are considered to be poorly performing, either due to um, the speed at which they determine applications is too slow or they have too many decisions overturned at appeal. And if they if they fall below certain thresholds, then they're at risk of being put into special measures and developers can bypass them to submit applications directly to the planning inspectorate. Okay, well, sounds a significant story and a, and a very concrete example of where um, a shortage of resources is, is causing practical problems. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. Uh, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Keep an eye out for the forthcoming Planning for Housing conference, which we're organising and takes place in London in November. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening. Goodbye.